Mentoring. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. So how many people know what the topic of tonight is? A few guesses? I only see a few people hesitant. What is it? Wisdom. Okay, okay. So if you've been coming for the last few weeks, you know that I've been doing this series. And I've been saying that it's a five-part series, but I decided to make it a six-part series. <laughs> because there's one more section of this discourse that um, I've been inspired by that I want to address uh, in two weeks' time. But today is going to conclude the is going to um, finish the five factors, and then the next time I, re I return, I'll be away next week, and then um, and we'll have a guest speaker. But when I return, we'll have the conclusion to the series, which actually turns an interesting corner in this discourse. But the discourse we've been looking at is called the Magia Sutta. And in the Magia Sutta, it says, as a refresher, it is expected that for one who has established the conditions of good friends, virtue, talk on the Dhamma, and wise effort, that wisdom concerning impermanence will grow. So wisdom is the topic for tonight's discourse. And wisdom is a factor that is highly praised in Buddhist practice. And I want to read just a few verses from other discourses in the Samyutta Nikaya that, that really describe the importance that's given to wisdom. Bhikkhus, just as the footprints of all living beings that walk fit into the footprint of an elephant, and the elephant's footprint is declared to be their chief by reason of its size, so too among the steps that lead to enlightenment, the faculty of wisdom is declared to be their chief, for that is for the attainment of enlightenment. Also from the Samyutta Nikaya, Bhikkhus, just as among the trees, the rose apple tree is declared to be their chief, so too among the states conducive to enlightenment, the faculty of wisdom is declared to be their chief, that is, for the attainment of enlightenment. Now, whether or not the rose apple tree is for you the greatest tree in the world is another question. But the point is, is that they take something, that there's a series of discourses that take one thing after another that's declared to be the best, and then say wisdom is also the, so important, so big, or so of such paramount importance for the attainment of realization. Another one. Bhikkhus, so long as noble knowledge has not arisen in the noble disciple, there is as yet no stability in the other faculties. But when noble knowledge has arisen in the noble disciple, then there is stability in the other faculties. It is just as in a house with a peaked roof. So long as the roof peak has not been set in place, there is as yet no stability of the rafters. But when the roof peak has been set in place, then there is stability of the rafters. In the case of a noble disciple, 
who possesses wisdom, the faith that follows from it becomes stable. The energy that follows from it becomes stable. The mindfulness that follows from it becomes stable. The concentration that follows from it becomes stable. And in the Magiya Sutta, it says, Furthermore, Magiya, a bhikkhu is wise, endowed with the noble one's penetrative understanding of rise and disappearance, leading to the complete ending of suffering. When mind deliverance is as yet immature, Magiya, this is the fifth thing that leads to its maturity. So interestingly, in the context of these five preconditions, wisdom is described as a preliminary factor, as a factor that's necessary to establish a practice, not necessarily the result of a successful practice, but as a precondition that is necessary for successful practice. Does this surprise you? Why do you think wisdom is presented as a precondition, as a foundation, rather than as an accomplishment or an outgrowth of the practice? The faculties of wisdom and faith must be developed together, developed in a way that they both grow and that they balance each other. Certainly we need enough faith, enough confidence, enough trust in our own potential and in the potential of this practice to bother to sit down and meditate, to bother to cultivate the mind. But faith in the practice and confidence in ourselves is not enough. Certainly Venerable Magia was confident. He had faith. He earnestly wanted to rush off to the riverbank that he saw would be so delightful as a place to practice meditation and seclusion. And he asked the Buddha many times for permission to just go off alone and practice meditation. But it was not successful for him. He was inspired. He was sincere. But his inspiration and his confidence were immature and his mind was unstable. So he had to come back to the Buddha, discouraged, confused, agitated, because he wasn't quite ready to undertake the practice that he wanted so earnestly to do. And so we cultivate many wholesome qualities that make it possible for awakening to happen, that support our awakening, that develop the path to awakening. We cultivate a non-interfering and balanced quality of attention, which is an integral aspect of the development of mindfulness. This is an observational quality that allows us to meet experience without interfering with it, without distorting it. Only when we can meet our presently arising experience will we have the potential to see what is real, what is actually happening, and notice the relationships, the conditioned patterns, the impersonal dynamics that surround perception. 
when we're not imposing our habitual ways of being and doing on every moment of our experience, we might be able to unravel the subtle latent, latent tendencies, the habits that are sustaining our suffering. Liberating wisdom does not arise randomly by chance. It's not just a matter of having a lucky day. Like all things, there are causes for the arising of wisdom. The Buddha lists four things that are conducive to the growth of wisdom. He says, this is in the Anguttara Nikaya, these four things, O monks, are conducive to the growth of wisdom. What four? Now think for a minute. What four do you think? Just, just play with it. If you had to list four things that were conducive to the growth of wisdom, what do you think it would be? Does everybody have at least one or two? Okay, then listen to what the Buddha said. Association with superior persons. Hearing the good Dhamma. Proper attention and practice in accordance with the Dhamma. Did anybody think of one that was similar to the Buddha's? A few, a few, yeah. Then he says, these four things are conducive to the growth of wisdom. These four things, okay, these four things are also a great help to a human being. And so again, those four are the association with superior persons, hearing the good Dhamma, proper attention, and practice in accordance with the Dhamma. Now, the association with superior persons, of course, doesn't mean association with arrogant persons. It really means people who have already cultivated wisdom and virtue and have developed their mind. In the Magiya Sutta, wisdom is described specifically as the penetrative understanding of the arising and passing of phenomena. Essentially, this noble wisdom is equivalent to the insight into impermanence. For Magiya, and also for each of us, before being able to succeed in intensive practice, we need the wisdom in order to recognize the impermanence of all things. But this is a bit of a chicken and egg situation because we need wisdom to turn our attention to impermanence. And it's by seeing impermanence that wisdom develops. Even though we know that things change, until we've vividly seen the arising and passing of matter and mind, we will be affected by wrong view. Without that direct and vivid experience of impermanence, the habit of mind is to reify encounters, to identify with experience, to try to gain personal accomplishments and in some way distort the liberating potential of the path. The perception of impermanence, though, implies a sober recognition of instability and of death. And also the absence of an enduring self-identity. So this is not a trivial aspect of insight. 
the contemplation of impermanence and death is profound. And yet, in a way, it's completely ordinary. The perception of impermanence can be dramatic and even destabilizing for fragile minds. And so we must take some care with it if we have not developed the proper conditions. But when the mind is properly prepared, it will not respond to the perception of impermanence with fear. It will not respond to seeing change with delusions that are rooted in attachment or by holding views that produce that familiarity, that feeling of comfort or security by grasping things that are known or trying to make things last. When we see impermanence with the wisdom that recognizes that the nature of all things is to arise and pass away, then our experience can be investigated and we can fully understand what is happening. And we won't then be grasping onto our experiences as personal attributes or personal possessions. We won't hold on to experiences as badges of accomplishment, and we won't grasp philosophies or jockey for positions in a social group, because we'll see it all as constantly changing. The perception of impermanence can have rippling effects that loosen all our attachments and even end the fear of death. Although available in every experience, day in and day out, usually we ignore the perception of impermanence. Did you recognize something changing today? Something appearing or disappearing, arising and passing? And actually vividly recognize, ah, This, too, is impermanent. Usually we're so familiar with change that we neglect to discern it and identify it. And we may then habitually relate to superficial sensory perceptions instead of keenly examine to see how our sensory perceptions are changing. So insight practice is often described as being like looking at our own experience in the present moment through a microscope. We intensify and magnify our examination. We look very, very carefully at our ordinary experience, sitting and breathing. Do you look closely? so closely at your mental and physical experiences that you really register that they're changing, that that's what they are, that's all they are, is changing phenomena. When you observe the breath, are you cognizant of the pause between breath, of the distinctions between breaths? When you observe thoughts, Do the stories sweep you away, or can you catch the individual triggers for certain thoughts, the associations, the formations? When you smell an odor, does it appear continuous? 
Or are you aware of the brief breaks in perception when the sensitivity to the nose is not being stimulated? When you take a bite of some food and you think it tastes salty, is salty a continuous experience or is it coming and going, changing through the duration of the chewing and the swallowing? All experience is changing. It's changing so rapidly that we often abbreviate and generalize the experience by not focusing on the sensory contact at all, but just the concept. We might let the initial sensory um, contact, such as a sight, like I see, I think those are Claire's brownies over there? (laughs) Strawberries? (laughs) Okay, so we've got brownies and strawberries. There's a sight. Now, is there a continued perception of seeing? Or is it just the concept that triggers again and again and again the mind circling around that experience? What happens when we're triggered by a concept is that we often don't notice how the perception is constructed, that it's constructed out of many, many rapidly changing moments of sensory contact, of experience, and that those experiences tend to blur together. And when they blur together, they form this impression of continuity that it's a continuous experience, that I am seeing or I am tasting through a period of time. If we don't see impermanence, we're likely to impute a kind of continuity to all experiences and then create a continuous sense of being the experiencer. For example, if we have an experience of an emotion, there's a mental trigger rather than a visual or a tasting trigger, but it works the same way. There's a moment of what's called mind contact. And then we usually apply some concept to that experience. We perceive it as, say, happiness or sadness. But if we don't recognize the arising and passing of that emotional state, we may project the idea of that feeling onto the past. Oh, I've been sad for so long. Or into the future, I will always be this happy. And then we'll unnecessarily and falsely expand the range of that emotion or construct an elaborate story out of associated thoughts, developing ideas and emotions that characterize who we are and how we have always been like that or always will be like that. When we've gotten lost and pulled into this conceptual experience of things that constructs this continuity, We're no longer responding. We're no longer mindful of present sensory contact. And our very experience of life is going to be distorted 
by those conditioned views. Wisdom implies the ability to clearly know the real nature of the object of perception, to basically know what is actually happening in the here and now without the delusion of misperception or false views. In the Sutta Nipata, it says, there are no ties to him who is free from ideas. There are no delusions to him who is delivered by wisdom. Those who grasp ideas and views wandering about, wander about coming into conflict in the world. Basically, we misperceive events simply because we don't see the impermanence of things. And when we don't see impermanence, we're more likely to cling. And when we cling, guess what we also get? Suffering. It's guaranteed. And so, in the Magiya Sutta, a wise person is described as endowed with the Noble One's penetrative understanding of rise and disappearance, leading to the complete ending of suffering. So here the rise and disappearance is describing the insight into impermanence, and that insight into impermanence leads to the end of suffering. So wisdom is not some kind of philosophical or scientific or educated type of knowledge. Penetrative wisdom is the insight into impermanence and the liberating comprehension that comes as we understand that there are causes for suffering and there is an end. When there's an end to those causes, there is an end to suffering. Wisdom in this context is the immediate knowledge of impermanence. And that immediate knowledge will have an effect. When we're seeing impermanence, we just don't cling. And we don't suffer as things change. This is the doorway to what's referred to as a direct comprehension of the noble truths. The noble truths of suffering. This is what makes wisdom noble. It makes the mind noble. It reveals the noble truths regarding suffering, the causes of suffering, the end of suffering, and the way to the ending of suffering. Because at a gross level, we can easily recognize suffering, particularly in painful states like grief and sorrow. But in a moment when we are just seeing the arising and passing of phenomena, we are witnessing the undeniable nature of all things. And seeing this clearly, we're not reacting through personal attachments, through ideas of self or other that might spark emotion, such as the emotion with the death of particular persons. But we are seeing what actually is happening. And we're understanding something very profound because we're understanding how causes lead to effects, leads to suffering. And with the absence, there is an absence of the effects that depend upon that cause. Seeing that all sensory contacts are 
know that they cannot be grasped and any attempt to cling to them or identify with them is doomed to fail. And so we have a direct understanding of the causes and the end of suffering. Seeing the arising and passing of every experience, every event, everything that we can know and feel points to a joyous recognition, a joyous, joyful moment, because we realize that the causes of suffering comes due to our relationship to experience, not because things are changing, but because of how we're relating to changing experiences. And as such, when we relate to the impermanent phenomena without clinging, liberation not only becomes possible, it becomes obvious. Now, in the last few weeks, I've discussed five conducive conditions that are necessary very foundations for successful meditation practice. Those include good friends, virtue and restraint, engaging in talk on the Dhamma, wise effort, and wisdom. I'd like you to take a moment to reflect and to honestly consider your practice and your lifestyle. And in particular, reflect if you're giving the time to the cultivation of good friends. Are you making an effort in this regard? And how's it going? Are you nurturing opportunities to engage in talk on the Dhamma? Do you try to find those opportunities? Steer a conversation that way? How does that go? Do you prefer, at least sometimes, restraint and virtue over self-indulgence? How are you working with the enhancing of restraint and virtue? And are you skillfully adjusting your effort and your energy to cultivate what's wholesome and abandon what's unwholesome? How strong, how clear is that aspect of development? And are you allowing the fact of impermanence, the perception of impermanence, to inform your daily encounters? 
Basically, I'm asking you, are you creating the conditions for a stable mind or a distracted mind? For profound inquiry or blind belief? For liberation or conformity? For wisdom or for ignorance? I hope you are not going to just cram meditation into your life as a kind of spiritual frosting on your worldly cake. But evaluate your life choices. What are your life choices cultivating? The conditions that you put yourself in now will become the causes for the effects that you will later experience. And so much of what I've spoken about in this series so far can be developed in the midst of our interactive life, not only in our meditation practice. We practice virtue, restraint, and friendship clearly in our interactions, in our work, in our home life, in our daily encounters. Effort is directed towards developing wholesome states and abandoning unwholesome states. This is not restricted to the meditation posture. And certainly recognizing how things change can happen all the time in any condition, in any moment, not just when we're sitting still with our eyes closed. Every day, whether you're sitting in meditation, participating in a meeting, conversing with your partner, shopping for groceries, waiting for a message, or puttering in your garden, you can be cultivating some aspect of these five preconditions, and it will support your meditation practice when you go to sit the next time. So I'd like to take a few minutes of silent sitting, just a few, and then invite some group discussion um, to reflect on which of these five conditions are most relevant for you and how can you continue to cultivate them and practice them in your life. So let's have a few quiet minutes, please.
reflect upon good friends. restraint and virtue talk on the Dhamma effort and energy for this endeavor and the wisdom that sees the arising and passing of things. Are these five preconditions well established for you? Which ones feel strong? Which ones feel weak? In what way might you strengthen whichever factors feel a bit weak? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.